Genre. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we're discussing Valency Sterling from the novel The Blue Castle by L.M. Montgomery. And joining us for the discussion is returning guest Rachel Armstrong. Welcome, Rachel. Hello. And we also have first-time guest Sarah Brinton. Welcome, Sarah. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, uh, Sarah, you were uh, roped into this because Rachel is your sister, correct? I, I think the roping went the opposite direction. <laughs> it was like, I love this book, Rachel. Can we talk about it with Joe? She was like, I will see. <laughs> well, I'm I'm glad you did. I was not familiar with this book. Uh, and for any listeners who are not, The Blue Castle is a 1926 novel that tells the story of balancing Sterling, discovering independence, love, and happiness after she's told she only has one year left to live by her doctor. Uh, and we'll get into the specifics of what that all means <laughs> when we get to the full plot summary. <laughs> There's your your broad view. I hadn't actually heard of this book. And I thought not only was it delightful to read, and I really did enjoy it, but it also felt pretty relevant to some of the pop culture discussions I've heard around um, uh, Turning Red and uh, oh, the, inter- yes, the, the interior lives of women <laughs> and, and female protagonists and men just wanting to dismiss, the, d- dismiss that, uh, you know, one half of the world's population. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And so there was like a lot of like, th- this felt very relevant to, to some of the, uh, well, I don't want to call them debates, maybe just some of the stupidity I've seen online <laughs> <laughs> around uh, the recent Pixar film that was released. Um, but so I came to it when you asked if we could do this and I'm always open to suggestions and, uh, learning about texts that I'm not already familiar with. So I loved, uh, having something where it's like, that's brand new to me. Let's do it. But, uh, Rachel and Sarah, and I don't know what order you want to tackle this in, but how did you two come to this book? Well, I, um, my mom loves Ella Montgomery and Sarah. Um, so I'm one of the youngest of nine kids and so I already had a lot of siblings reading these books so I just remember at some point coming in to my life yeah so just I'm the, sure the hand-me-down pop culture from <laughs> yes from exactly that and a holy sweatshirt um champion sweatshirt oh man I've got so many sweatshirts from Sarah so yeah <laughs> <laughs> um yeah I don't remember I think it was when I had read Anna Green Gables and the Anna Green Gables series so many times and then thought isn't there something else good to read in the world? And I realized that Ellen Montgomery had written a lot of things and was trying to be comprehensive about um, reading her whole or oeuvre, oeuvre. And, <laughs> and so I came across this one and I thought, oh my goodness, I love this book. And it quickly became one of my favorite novels um, of all. And it's, and she's such a popular author, so important to so many people's lives. And yet here is this really stunning um, story with these interesting characters doing cool things, and yet it just does not get nearly enough um, airtime. I do want to tell one story about its role in my life. Can I tell one story about its role in my life? Please do. Yes, always. Um, so, uh, so at some point, I, Rachel tells me that it was because I was graduating from high school, but I do not remember that. But at some point, my parents proposed that we all, all the whole family, go on a family vacation to Prince Edward Island 
which is not something my family did very often go on vacations to places without family to visit. And in preparation, my dad read all of Ellen Montgomery's books. That was his, he decided to prepare in that way, which is very sweet and cool of him. And I was there and it was so beautiful. Have you been there, Joe, to Prince Edward Island? I have not. It is just as beautiful as the movies make it seem. It's just red I've only been there through adaptations of Anne of Green Gables. (laughs) Yes. And they're right on. They are not lying. It's just, it's just gorgeous. And I was there and I was feeling so misty eyed and, um, you know, mate maidenly and um <laughs> was wondering what my five brothers were doing enjoying it you know like how 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 is it going for them this vacation at prince edward island so at one point we we're at cavendish beach this little beach and we were swimming in the water and i saw my dad out swimming in the water talking to my very oldest brother who at the time was probably 24 he had a he was married he had a child and i thought i wonder what they're talking about like maybe like how is this vacation going for nate and i swam out there and my dad i heard my dad say to my oldest brother nate he said so the doctor tells her she has a heart condition and she's going to die. <laughs> and it turns out he was swimming in the water, recounting the plot of the Blue Castle to my oldest brother, Nate, which I just was like, I love happening upon this moment in my dad's life. So then my dad got called into the beach, as parents often do, and he's swimming away. And my oldest brother, Nate, calls out after him. So does she die? And he starts swimming in behind him. And I thought the men in my family are so cool. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Uh, and and yeah, if you don't get that reveal, you've got to ask the follow up question. If you've that's like right. only gotten a partial summary uh, of the book so far. Yes. Yeah. All right. So I didn't find a whole lot of trivia about this. So feel free to throw anything in about Ellen Montgomery or this book in particular that you have, you know, off the top of your domes. But the little bit I do have. um, (laughs) So Montgomery is most famous for her Anne of Green Gables novels. This novel has been adapted into a musical play twice, once in Poland and once in Canada. Two different musicals based on this. Um, Which is interesting because in the United States, it's still under copyright. So it's not yet in the public domain. Um, Mm, Yeah, I wonder if those musicals. I didn't go check the years. I bet because the european and uh canadian copyrights i think are not as they, they haven't been exactly. the way american yeah copyrights so have. you can find a full text version online but the united states i'm like i keep waiting to see a movie based on it or it to show up someplace but um for whatever reason it's still under copyright and they're not releasing it mm. and uh you shared this with me a little bit before um i had stumbled upon it when i was looking some stuff up but there's a plagiarism controversy with this book not that Montgomery ripped it off, but that it was ripped off by Australian author Colleen McCullough it, for her 1987 novel, The Ladies of Missalonghi. Miss, and, I don't know. And she's a, she's yes. a big deal. She's like an iconic. She mm-hmm. wrote the Thornbirds. You know, yes. she is like, you know, just like Ella, Canada loves Ella Montgomery. Um, Australia loves Colleen McCullough. And that's one thing I heard about it is that uh, I was reading about it is that it was kind of a big deal because she ended up sort of messing with Canada's girl. You know, and some people were feeling very proprietary about um, the particular particular book that she allegedly plagiarized. And I have to tell you, England's just over there saying children play nice. Stop it. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So she's not uh, Jane Austen. Come on. Do you know more about uh, how close uh, McCullough's potential ripoff is? Very close. I mean, yeah. It's very close. If we described the plot, I only know it from reading many articles about this plagiarism. If we described the plot to you, it would be almost identical. Even the old maid, the old maid's name, who's the Valency character, her her name's Missy. Her she lives with her mother and her mother's cousin, and her mother's cousin's name is something very much like Stickles. It's like 
cousin pickles oh. or something. You know, it's, I mean, it's not that, but it's very close. Um, and, and her it's, uncle it's, runs the grocery store and she goes to the library. And she, I'm, I'm yeah. recognizing some things here. Yes. yes. It takes place in a beautiful, a beautiful area. And she has like a dream life inside of her. And, and it's a very similar. She, she gets told she has a heart condition. And now we're sort of getting to the plot of, but it's basically, yeah. and they're even, she wears um, a snuff brown dress. You remember the snuff brown dress in a uh, yes, castle? Yeah. Uh-huh. Missy in the Lives of Miss Longguy, she wears a snuff brown dress. Um, so, yeah. Colin McCullough said, saw... well, I guess I read it, but it, it was just in my head. Yeah, I, I, yeah McCullough, didn't she call it like, unconscious, an unconscious homage? <laughs> was that how yeah. she had tried to hand wave that away? Right. <laughs> Which, that's a lot of hand waving. If it's you're, a lot. If, if... And incidentally, it was out of print at the time, you know, so I don't know if you've seen the movie What's Up, Doc? It's such a yeah, good movie. Oh, yes. Uh, um, I've been very close to talking about that on this podcast multiple times, oh, but man. it's never happened. Let's do it. It's so great. Okay. But there's that great moment at the end where the whole, the whole, the bad guy's wickedness is revealed because it turns out he plagiarized um, a, a, a little known edition, right, of a, of a, of a, of a music manuscript that was only in one language. I feel like that's sort of this. She just got, she thought she was plagiarizing something people wouldn't recognize, but they did. I mean, if you're if you're gonna plagiarize, don't, don't go with Montgomery. Like, find someone yeah. who had a print run of like 200 and never never was well, heard of it, again. I mean, this is 1987 though. So when like when did the um, Anna Green Gables movies come out? Were they even in Australia? Australia then they certainly hadn't oh. become quite the cult sensation. I mean, we did do a podcast on those Anna Green Gables movies, but I don't remember off the top of my head. I just want to uh, give her some like some chronological plausibility there. She may just have you know. It just thought, you know, uh, you know, let's see. Looks like she maybe didn't foresee Megan follows. 1985 is the. Oh, interesting. The, the most I mean, now there's the Netflix one from 2017, but the one that I think a lot of people think of as the Anne of Green Gables. That's 1985. Yeah, it's canon. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, before we jump over to the full summary, we want to thank you for downloading this episode, listeners. And we especially want to thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you would like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we talk about the media that we've been consuming that we are not yet covering as full episodes of the podcast. And all patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. Uh, now, Rachel, you were kind enough to write a summary for this novel. Yes. So I will turn the time over to you. Okay, awesome. Valency Sterling is unmarried and unloved at the old age of 29. It really does get treated like, oh, (laughs) this is really beyond the pale. Yeah. (laughs) She is 29. (laughs) She wakes up on her 29th birthday to another drab day in a drab little house where she lives with her aggravating mother and her mother's cousin, Cousin Stickles. Valency herself is quite subdued, quiet and subdued, but in her imagination, she lives in a beautiful blue castle full of clothes and jewels and a dashing lover who changes based on her preferences. Um, Because of the rain, Valency is saved from attending Aunt and Uncle Wellington's yearly engagement anniversary picnic, which falls on her birthday each year and is usually full of jabs from her extended family about her being unmarried. She decides instead to go to the library and pick up a John Foster novel. John Foster is the pen name of a Canadian writer who describes nature in a way so beautiful that Valency can see outside of her dreary life. She also decides to visit Dr. Trent to see about some heart pain she's had. Before the doctor can give her a diagnosis, he receives a phone call 
and rushes out of the office. The housekeeper reveals that Dr. Trent's son has been in a car crash and that the doctor left to catch the train. On Valancy's way home from the doctor, she sees Barney Snaith working on his car, shameless with his unshaven face and worn out overalls. Barney is known around town as a bank robber, a murderer, and a philanderer. But Valancy knows that whatever he's done, it can't have been that bad because of his smile and how content he seems. After supper, Valancy must rub Redfern's liniment on Cousin Stickle's neuralgic back. <laughs> oh, man. Poor woman. That's I, not a birthday so glad. every day. Yeah. I, I, see, uh, you have a freshness when it comes to writing summaries that you're willing to go back for those details where I'm oh, like, okay. I, I, it is so perfect to me that uh, you wrote the summary so that you would uh, really still dig into that level of specificity, which <laughs> is so amazing. <laughs> Oh, I'm so glad that sentence was just read out loud. <laughs> <laughs> Two days after her birthday, Valency falls into an unprecedented fit, fit of rage and uses a garden knife to hack up the rosebush she was once given that has never bloomed. A rosebush should bloom, she declares when her mother confronts her about it. Her mother gives her the silent treatment, and this gives Valency a chance to leave for the post office without being questioned about the mail. Valency receives a letter from Dr. Trent. Her last name is spelled wrong, but Dr. Trent tells her that she has a fatal form of heart disease, angina pectoris, and probably won't live longer than a year. She must avoid any excitement or moderate exercise. Shocked and sad, Valency does not immediately tell her family about the, the letter. When Cousin Stickles notices that she seems out of spirits, she suggests Valency drink vinegar or that Cousin Stickles rub Redfern's liniment on Valency's forehead. <laughs> I kind of love that Co Cousin Stickles was wearing, willing to do that, but Valency vehemently refuses, much to Cousin Stickle's surprise. That night, Valency decides to keep her diagnosis to herself. She doesn't want her family's pity or interference to lead her to a more sheltered existence. During that wretched night, she looks over her life and finally decides she's going to live the rest of her life without fear, to please herself and never pretend anything to anyone again. At Uncle Herbert and Aunt Alberta's silver wedding celebration a few weeks later, the extended family discovers a change in Valency, whom they've been calling Doss up to this point. When asked what the greatest happiness is, Valency says it's to sneeze when you want to, much to the horror of her relatives. She names her relatives foibles, and then she leaves when her heart starts to hurt. When she gets home, she has her worst heart episode yet. The Sterling extended family holds a meeting to decide what to do about Valency. They debate having her committed to a mental hospital, but ultimately decide to give her some space. As Dr. Marsh points out, she hasn't actually done anything crazy. Valency's <laughs> mother, Mrs. Frederick, asks Roaring Abel who's an old man who does odd jobs, mostly while drunk, to fix her front porch roof. While Abel works on the roof, he and Valency talk. Valency asks about his daughter, Cecilia, who is dying. Roaring Abel has had a hard time keeping a good housekeeper because of his reputation, Cecilia's illness, and the baby who Cecilia had out of wedlock. The baby has died, but Cecilia's reputation has been sullied. Valency decides to become their housekeeper, and without her mother's approval, moves into Abel's home. Sissy where Cecilia is so happy to see her, and Valency is happy to finally be of use to someone. Valency is delighted to find out that Barney Snaith is a frequent visitor at Roaring Abel's. Barney appreciates the help Valency gives Sissy. Valency at some point tries to read John Foster to Abel and Barney, but they both refuse to listen. Uncle James comes to visit Valency one day to convince her to come back home. When Uncle James insults Roaring Abel, Roaring Abel throws Uncle James out of the house. Then the Sterlings send Dr. Stalling, the Reverend, to convince Valley to come home. Valency to come home. Valency almost cowers under him, but remembering John Foster's words about courage, she stands her ground. 
When Valancy receives her first month's wages, she spends all the money on new clothes. She attends the Free Methodist Church up back, which is horrifying to her mother. Uh, and up back is like back in the woods, um, up past the town, which is horrifying to her mother. But the cr- preacher is an old, kind man who believes what he teaches. Later, the Sterlings hear that Valancy has attended a dance at Chidley Corners, even though respectable w- w- young women don't usually go there. The dance is nice at first, but when it gets late, the men start drinking alcohol, and some men pressure Valancy to dance with and kiss them after she initially refuses. Barney arrives at the dance, and when he sees a drunk man pulling Valancy onto the dance floor, he punches him and helps Valancy escape. Barney chides her for coming and starts to drive her home in his car. Then his car runs out of gas on the road. While they wait for another car to get gas from, Valancy discovers that she is in love with Barney. She tells him about her blue castle and her previous drab existence. When another car does come, it holds her Uncle Wellington and Cousin Olive. Her uncle gives them gas begrudgingly, and Olive tries to convince Valancy to come to her senses and come home, but Valancy insults her. I Pretty love that moment the rest- with the uncle when he's like, wow, Oh, yeah. I, I cannot approve of you two being here, but I cannot leave you here all night long. So, what yeah. am I going to do? <laughs> Pretty soon, the residents of Deerwood, including the Sterlings, see Valancy riding about town with Barney. Valancy knows Barney feels sorry for her, but she enjoys her time with him anyway. One night when Cecilia can't sleep, she tells Valancy her story. She met and fell in love with a young man while she worked at a hotel. When his father took him away, she found out she was pregnant. The young man found out, but she refused his offer of marriage because she could tell he didn't love her anymore. Cecilia moved home with her father and raised her beautiful baby until the baby died. Then she was relieved when she found out she was dying as well. I have often thought about that moment with Sissy talking about her baby. Oh. I mean, like over the decades when she talks about how she would bite her baby softly, not to hurt him, you know, but the way you do because he was so precious and perfect. Yeah. <sighs> over the decades, that has given me a lot of sort of heart sparkles and sadness. <laughs> um, a few days later, Cecilia dies. As the sun rises, she smiles and passes away with Valancy near her. Abel comes in late, and when he hears that Cecilia is dead, he mourns her. Barney helps Valancy prepare for the funeral, but leaves before it begins. The Sterlings come, hoping that Valancy will now return home. Now that Cecilia is dead, Valancy's decision seems really respectable. The family admires how Valancy manages the funeral and wonders if they've been hard on her. And Edward Beck, a widower with many children, seems interested in marrying Valancy. Valancy tells her mother she will be coming home, and Abel is sorry to hear she'll leave. He goes out drinking, and Valancy waits in the front yard for Barney. When he does drive by, drive by, she asks him to marry her. She tells him she's crazy about him, and gives him Dr. Trent's letter about her heart. Barney agrees to marry her, and he sets some ground rules. He has secrets he doesn't want to share. She must not ask about them. They must live on his island, and they must never lie to each other. She tells him in return that he must not mention her heart. Then he tells her he doesn't love her, but he does think she's a dear. The next evening... Dear is in D-E-A-R. <laughs> the next evening, Barney picks her up in her green dress and takes her to the free Methodist preacher to be married. He takes her back to his little island with its shack. When she sees it on the propeller boat, she exclaims, My blue castle! I, she probably didn't say it like that, but... Bouncy walks into Deerwood four days after her wedding. And Deerwood is the town that she used to live in. Cousin Georgiana is excited to tell her that Edward Beck wants to marry her, until Valancy reveals she's already married. Valancy also finds out that the rose bush she attacked is finally blooming. And she tells Olive, her cousin, much to Olive's dismay, that she is married to Barney Snaith. When she enters the house, the Sterlings are all there, and she gives them the news of her marriage. They decide to treat her like she's dead. Valancy spends a happy summer with Barney. Valancy, and then they have this really beautiful description of the blue castle. Um, 
The big living room had three windows, all commanding exquisite view of exquisite mistuous. The one in the end of the room was an oriel window, which had come from an old upback church that had been sold. It faced the west, and when the sunsets flooded it, Valancy's whole being knelt in prayer as if in some great cathedral. The new moons always looked down through it, the low, lower pine boughs swayed about the top of it, and all through the nights the soft, dim silver of the lake dreamed through it. They explore the woods and lake, they talk, they eat tasty food, they go swimming. During the day, Barney goes into his shed and does something mysterious. Valancy thinks he, must be, he might be counterfeiting money based on the smell. The winter is lovely, but Barney gets a bad cold, and when Valancy buys some red ferns liniment for him, he throws it into the port. Barney brings her another John Foster book, but he tells her not to expect him to read it. Sometimes Valancy feels like she is living in a John Foster novel because of the loveliness around her. For Christmas, Barney gives Valancy a necklace of pearl beads. She loves them, but she's worried they may have cost him $15. Roaring Abel joins them during short winter days and plays the fiddle for them. Late in March, Barney goes out on a walk and a winter storm comes. He doesn't come back until the next day. Valancy spends the night in despair, but when she sees Barney coming home again, she tells him she feels like she has died and come back to life. One day in the spring, the famous painter Alan Tierney sees Valancy and asks Barney if he can paint her. In May, Valancy has a moment in which she realizes Barney really likes her. They are on a walk in the woods and sit together on an old fence. Valancy's year of life is almost up, but she realizes she hasn't had a heart attack in two months. On a walk one day in June, Valancy, who's wearing a pair of high heels, accidentally gets stuck in the railroad track. Barney tries to save her, but he almost fails as he cuts her shoe off and pulls her away before the train comes. Valancy realizes that she must not be dying because this shock would have killed her. Barney seems distraught, as she believes it's because he realizes she may live a long time, and his decision to marry her is permanent. The next morning, when Valancy wakes up, she realizes Barney has left to explore the woods. She decides to go in to see Dr. Trent and find out what's happening with her heart. Dr. Trent is happy to see she's doing well and tells her it's as he said to her in her letter. When she shows him the letter, saying she has less than a year to live, he feels ashamed. Because the letters were mixed up. A woman named dun, dun, Jane dun. Sterling, yeah, with an E, was supposed to receive that letter. Instead, she got the letter for, Jane, for Valancy Sterling with an I. She was old and lonely and died two months after receiving her mistaken letter, but her case had been hopeless anyway. Dr. Trent is surprised Valancy didn't check with another doctor after her diagnosis. Valancy is determined to show Barney that she didn't mean to trick him, even though she knows it means an expensive divorce and returning to her childhood home. When she arrives back at the island, she's surprised to see a man with a chauffeur and a bright purple car. She recognizes the man as Dr. Red Redfern from the medicine bottles, and he tells her he is Barney's father. Barney's real name is Bernard Snaith Redfern. His doctor, Dr. his dad is Dr. Redfern. Yeah. What? <laughs> Face on all the medicine bottles in the whole book. <laughs> I never thought we were going to get to see him in real life. I just did not think he'd really be a character. And there he is in person, <laughs> right outside the Blue Watch Castle. It's amazing. Dr. Redfern is surprised but delighted to hear that Barney is married to Valancy. He reveals they have millions of dollars and that women always wanted Barney for his money but were ashamed of his father's business. Dr. Redfern says it's been 11 years since he's seen Barney. Bernie. Bernie, I guess his name. Yes. Valancy finds out that from Dr. Redfern that his wife died when Barney was two, just as Dr. Redfern was getting rich from the hair formula he dreamed up. Barney never seemed happy, though, even though he went to good schools. Eventually, he fell in love with a beautiful, smart woman named Ethel Travers, but they had a falling out, and Barney left to travel the world after their engagement ended. Barney stopped writing to his father six years ago, but last Christmas, Dr. Redfern found out that Barney had taken out $15,000 from an account Barney never used. Valancy realizes the check was for a jewelry store, 
where Barney bought her pearl necklace. Can I just Dr. say something about money in Ellen Montgomery's books? Yep. Because of um, Anna Green Gables, where she, where Matthew buys 20 pounds of brown sugar for $1, you know, he, he, like, he goes in to buy a dress for Anne and he comes out feeling embarrassed, but he also brought, bought 20 pounds of brown sugar for $1. I always convert things brown in, sugar. Exactly. 20 pounds of brown sugar. I always convert Ellen Montgomery book money into brown sugar. <laughs> so to me, $15,000 is 15 times 20. Thousand dollars, thousand pounds of brown sugar. Think how much money, how much money it costs to buy fifteen thousand times twenty pounds of brown sugar. That's what three hundred thousand pounds of brown sugar. That is an expensive pearl necklace. Okay, that's it. Um, Doctor Redfern wants Valency to convince Barney to come back and live in the Redfern ma- mansion. He reveals that initially he came to contact Barney because Ethel Travers was now is now a widow. Once Dr. Redfern leaves, Valency decides to write a note to Barney. She goes into a secret room to look for a pen and finds a galley proof of wild honey by John Foster on his desk. Barney is John Foster. In Valency's note, she tells Barney she's sorry for trapping him in their marriage. She tells him she'll help him with the divorce. She places the pearls by the note, knowing that they are $15,000. Then she leaves for her childhood home. When Valency arrives home, Cousin Stickles, her mother, and Uncle Benjamin are unhappy to have her back. She tells them that she thought she was going to die, and now knows she won't for a while. When she reveals that Barney is John Foster, and Dr. Redfern's son, and a millionaire, they are suddenly very kind to her. The next afternoon, Barney comes to the house demanding to see Valency. She doesn't want to see him, but Uncle Benjamin tells her that Barney won't leave until she has. Barney is so happy to see her and tells her that when she was almost hit by the train, he knew he loved her. But Valency says she knows he's only pitying her. He decides to tell her about Ethel Travers. He had been made fun of as a boy, even by those he thought were his friends, because of his dad's business. After college, he fell in love with Ethel. When he found out Ethel only wanted to marry him for his money, he left everything. He realized six years ago that he no longer cared about Ethel, so he came back to Canada, bought his island um, with the money from the royalties of his first book. He told Valency that he did initially marry her because he felt sorry for her, but then he really liked her and was happy as they were. When the train incident happened, he realized he loved her and was horrified she was going to die. He determined he'd take her to all the doctors to figure out her heart issue. When she read, when he read her note, he was so happy she was okay, and a little worried she didn't really care for him. But Valency still doesn't believe him. Then he gets angry and thinks she's embarrassed about him being related to Dr. Redfern. When she realizes how angry he is, she decides he must truly love her, so she decides to go back to him. Uncle Benjamin is delighted, and he decides to make Valency his sole heir. Valency's mom gets out the family Bible so she can finally record Valency's marriage. Not Valency official. says in the family Bible. I, yeah, <laughs> Valency says she isn't prepared to live in high society, but Barney tells her they'll build a little house outside of Montreal so they can visit his lonely father. During the summers, they'll stay on their island, and during the autumns, they'll travel. He wants her to see the Alhambra, which he thinks sounds like her blue castle. Valency makes him promise never to make fun of her for asking him to marry her. When he says that about the Alhambra, it feels like he's been holding that in for a long time. Like he can't tell her I've seen the Alhambra because that would reveal something about himself. But when he's that, I think it's just such a funny detail for him to include. Yes. Right after the reveal, like and I can take you to the Alhambra. It's so much like the Blue <laughs> Castle. I just feel like he's been holding on to that. Yes, yeah, that's a good point. Valency's cousin Olive writes a letter to her fiancé complaining about the family fawning over Valency, but she tells Cecil he should exercise more, (laughs) like Barton. Valency's mother is very proud of her daughter and her rich son-in-law. Well, thank you for that excellent summary. Um, Thank you. Do you have any sense of how many times you've read or, uh, like, heard an audiobook version of this story? 
Um, I've done, uh, I would say about six or seven times. Okay. What about you, Sarah? Yeah, I mean, I'm 12 years older, so I don't know. At once every year. So, I don't know, 20 or 30. Okay, that's that's a fair number of times you've gone through this story then. So no surprises <laughs> for you as you as you were preparing for this. <laughs> no, but I'm easily startled, so I still feel a lot of like she is so startled. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just curious because this book hinges on so many twists at the end. Do you have any memory of like what surprised you and what you had predicted as far as twists? I do. Yes. I was legitimately surprised that Dr. Redfern became a character. I knew mm-hmm. he was a metaphor for something, sort of a symbol, but that he showed up in person was legitimately surprising to me. And I also was a little surprised that Barney turned out to also be John Foster himself. I thought maybe he'd know John Foster or John Foster be their neighbor or something, but that he was actually John Foster. Um, n- now I feel differently about it because I'm older and I've read it so many times, but then I was like, who would have guessed? It's so magical. <laughs> yes, yeah. I think I was surprised when Valency proposed to him. I didn't mm. see that coming the first time. Yes. True. Yeah, I'd say the proposal, definitely with you, the the uh, Dr. Redfern, I didn't expect at all <laughs> for him to be stepping off the bottles and into the narrative uh, right? of this story. Um, I felt like the the author reveal, like it didn't surprise me, but I also, it didn't bother me that it didn't because it wasn't about that shocking the reader. It was about it shocking Valency, right? You know, that, mm-hmm. and I think yeah. enough work was done to show that she really had decided not to care <laughs> about his secret life, that whatever yes. it was, was going to surprise her. Uh, and, and so the the lack of surprise on that reveal didn't didn't bother me. As far as like her her illness, I was waiting for something to fix it, and I was I had a little bit of time where I was worried this was going to be a a uh, ignore science and go live within nature, and your body will heal itself kind of story. Which <laughs> I think there is value in getting away and be part of nature, but just the uh, but but then it ended up not being that. It was the doctor had made a mistake uh, because of his you know his grief and distraction, and so it it averted what I was worried maybe we were heading towards as as one of the themes of the story. <laughs> uh, and so when I, I was waiting for like some way for her health you know to, to take the positive turn i just didn't know yeah, what it was i was be. hoping for it for sure i didn't realize it would be like oh it was already resolved a long time ago mm-hmm. um it was ne- it was never really an issue and i i think you had noted in the in the book that was accused of plagiarizing this one it one change that was made was that the the valency type character just outright lies about a health condition yeah yeah which makes that far far less um likable <laughs> in terms of being a character <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it really cha- it really it really changes for me um, what we like about Valency, what we see in her, um, why we're proud of the choices she makes. To it, 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 I mean, it is it is it is wonderful to watch a person feel freer and confront the bullies in their lives, um, but to do so with like lying and manipulation at the sort of heart of their path to freedom. It, it, it's worrisome. It, it it it's like a fly, a fly in the ointment, right? It's just ugh. yeah. So the fact and that Valency think- gets there, sort of honest terms, is very is just deeply satisfying. Mm-hmm. Because I think you know one reason you might make that move is it feels more attentive, you know, for the character like really be taking hold and and choosing yeah. it. But I think you're sacrificing a lot of ability to root for the character, um, you know, if, yeah, if that's the the origin of it. Um, and I think we get an interesting 
moment of Valency's, um, you know, her taking control when she realizes that she has not of her own volition, but that she has misled her husband. She chooses to like, okay, I've got to give him the right out. I've got to do the right thing and allow him out of this marriage, even though that would not be my choice right now. And so I think we still reclaim some of that, um, you know, know, uh, defining of choices with with Valency. Just, you know, despite the uh, her her, um, you know, being unintentionally duped by her doctor. Oh, you know, I didn't notice until you said that, that it kind of parallels um, Sissy's interactions with the man who get, gets her pregnant, that maybe Valency thinks this is a moment where, you know, Sissy loved this man. He got her pregnant. He comes back to offer to marry her, but she realizes he doesn't love her anymore. And she feels like it's more of the right mm. thing to do not to accept mm. his offer. And so maybe Valency is playing out on a larger sc- well, you know, on a similar scale, that problem. Oh, I had, I had not spotted that, but I think you're right. I mean, yeah, there's, there's some, parallels of, yeah. some parallels that I think we can't miss the rose bush, <laughs> you know, being one of yeah. them. <laughs> but I, I definitely had not seen that parallel that you just identified. So I think, yeah, there's, it's definitely woven in and there's probably a couple others that maybe, you know, with the first pass, we're not catching. Yeah. I mean, I will say that it, it is, um, it's just so much about Valency's maturation. The whole book this time I was saying that, you know, that we're watching her grow into a much more mature woman. Um, and somehow Sissy always struck me as mature, even though she was characterized as so small, so weak, right? Taken advantage mm-hmm. of in the most intimate way. There was something about her, a fire inside that seemed wise and even though Valency was clearly capable when she showed up at Sissy's house to take care of her, she was able to make pies and salted boiled codfish or whatever, you know, um, <laughs> and clean the house and wear aprons that Sissy, who didn't have those physical skills, there was something in her. And I think part of it's that it was that moment where her, her lover came to her and proposed and she could have taken advantage of it. And she had decided because of her own internal values that she wouldn't. Yeah, um, and so we, cool. then we watch Valency sort of step into <laughs> that kind of decision making. You know, like what what are my true values? What are my true guides? And even if I lose things, what what's more important to me? Yeah, I think it's really interesting because um, you know the character Cecilia. How much uh, you know of the book? What percentage is she a character that we get? Not not a huge percentage of the book. Like, yeah, very small. But in that sketch of her life we're able to pull a lot of what, you know, what you, what you were just identifying because she comes across as a fully fleshed out character. And that's one thing that definitely stood out to me, uh, you know, like early on when we're getting like the run through of all of Valencia's family, like mm-hmm. in three sentences, I felt like I knew those, who those people were. So, <laughs> they were oh so man. Good. There's so many great, I wrote down some quotes because there's so many um, great characters in it. Like <laughs> Cousin Stickles. It says, Cousin Stickles had seen a terrible thing. She had caught Valency sliding down the banister. Cousin Stickles did not tell Mrs. Frederick this. Poor Amelia was worried enough as it was. <laughs> that, I mean, that tells you about all three of those characters that are involved in that right yeah. away. <laughs> yeah. And then this one about second cousin Sarah Taylor. Second cousin Sarah Taylor, so proper that she blushed when she saw the advertisement picture of a corset and had to put a dress on her Venus de Milo statute statuette which made it look quote unquote real tasty (laughs) (laughs) oh well done montgomery like her character sketches i was just uh, yeah they're so good yeah she just really nails it and um it's this balance of 
uh, like character where we're getting to like some very broad details of who these people are, but also enough resonance that it's kind of like, eh, I know that <laughs> that type of person in my own life or, or or from other characters that it just it sings when you when you come across those. Like even the even the um her the preacher that she fears would come in and persuade her to go back. The reason mm-hmm. she fears him, the, the the sort of thing that justifies that is uh, this experience she had when she was a little girl and she went to church and she ended up, I guess, there after Sunday school had started, but before the actual service had started. So she was just sitting in the benches by herself. And he stood at the front of the room and pointed to her and said, come here, little boy. <laughs> she was like, what's <laughs> happening? And he pointed his finger at her and she kept saying it. So finally she went up to him and he was like, we don't wear hats in church. And she made he made her take off her hat, and she ran back to her bench. And then, of course, her mom walked in and was like, "Why are you wearing your hat?" <laughs> she put her hat on. I felt I mean, that's really all we know about him, basically, yeah. as a person. And you're like, okay, I get that. I would not. I would be both scared of him and not interested in and, his church. And those moments where you feel the conflict of like two authority figures giving you conflicting instructions, and you don't know how to. Like, I I have vivid memories of a child of some of those moments of like, (laughs) oh, no, (laughs) I don't I don't know which what what I'm supposed to do. And like, I think for a child, those can kind of like sear in your memory. And like you're saying, like, for us, our our understanding of Valencia and her relationship with this preacher, like just any, uh, you know, secondhand, like awkwardness that we feel from that and shame and concern and panic, uh, we can project and understand why she can never like that preacher again. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, what's interesting is like it's her her response then totally makes sense. She did what he said. She did what her mom said. Um, but it is it is definitionally immature. Right. A more mature person would have been like, hey, I'm not a boy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I am a girl. Um, or and then when her mom said, you know, even if she'd done the first part, take off the hat, then she would say to her mom, mom, he told me to do it. There, a more mature person would have confronted those. But um, she just didn't have that skill set, as we often don't when we're a kid. But what we see is that Balancey carries that into her into her 20s. Right. She mm-hmm. never she her mom is constantly pushing her in one way and she just goes that way, you know, and then oh. inside she just despairs. Now, like one that still sticks with me, I may have shared this on this podcast, but it was years ago and we're almost to 400 episodes. So I'm sure no one remembers it. Uh, but I remember in elementary us. school, a safety film strip that we watched about bus safety that said, take 10 steps in front of the bus before you cross when you get off the school bus as kids. And so I got off the bus that afternoon and I was counting my 10 steps and I was on like seven and the bus driver laid on the horn and I about jumped out of my skin. <laughs> and I saw him like pointing, like get across in front of the bus. Why am I sitting here waiting here while you're taking 10 steps out in front of the bus? And he was yelling at me. And I just remember the, the mix of like panic and like, Oh no, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> <laughs> Oh. That should be in a novel someday. That's delightful. <laughs> and horrifying. That does sound horrifying. I was told to do this by an authority figure. <laughs> I was just taking 10 steps. I was counting and taking big ones. Yes. <laughs> extra safe. You just want to be extra safe. Yes. And I'm sure he's like, what is this kid doing? <laughs> I've got 27 other brats back here yelling. <laughs> Uh, um, anything else that you wanted to talk about with Valency or uh, just praising Montgomery's story in general either of those I think are paths we can still explore um, well I was thinking that dinner scene where she finally confronts all of her family members <laughs> some great is, work, um, sketch work in that too yeah so great she just kind of focuses on each of them and thinks about how she's been afraid of them but then like what they're really bringing to the table and it's was so satisfying for so long and then i was listening to it with my husband matt 
And I was like, oh, she's being so mean. For some reason, having someone else listen with me at the same time, I was like, ah, this is, she was not being as likable as I thought she was. Um, but I do love the moment when her uncle Herbert, who's been kind of upset that she's, you know, taken over his um, wedding dinner when she leaves and the family starts gossiping and he's like, ah, oh, a little, little bored that Valency, now that Valency isn't here anymore. You know, like the, her fa- her extended family recognizes that there's something she's bringing to the table, even as they think she's going, as one of them says, dippy, plain dippy, um, <laughs> that, uh, that they've been missing. Yeah. I think it is an interesting moment that you're describing where she finally, um, you know, for us as an audience feels like, you know, she's, she's becoming her own person instead of, uh, you know, a, a shrinking version um, of, of an adult, uh, you know, just cowered by the presence of her, her mother and her aunts and uncles and uh, cousins that she's views as superior to her. But there is definitely a harshness and a bitterness that is yeah. spilling out. Um, and on the one hand, it's all earned. <laughs> like Everything she's saying uh, probably needed to be said before she turned 29. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've, I've been thinking a lot recently about this um, thing that I heard a internet therapist say um, about how. Um, <laughs> I mean, she's not an internet therapist. She's a therapist who is also on the internet. Into- <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean to be disparaging. I just wanted to get there quickly. Um, that uh, you know, compliance. We ought, that sometimes we do what people want us to do, or what systems want us to do, what our church wants us to do, what family wants us to do out of a, just a compliance orientation, a desire to avoid conflict and please. And when we decide that doesn't work for us, sometimes what we do is flip into a posture of defiance where we're just going to do the opposite because mm-hmm. the other way didn't work. But both are equally immature. Compliance and defiance are both equally immature. Um, and maturation comes from figuring out some pathway through, some pathway forward that takes into account both the concerns you had before and your values, you know, that is sort of a more whole, she talks, I've heard about this. um, It's about, it's about um, a model for thinking through the maturation of women in particular, that women in general, when they're babies, whether they're girls, um, they, when they're little, they are focused on um, uh, pleasing themselves, you know, what delights them. Um, I like this. I don't like this. And then they sometimes move into a, a phase where they are focused on pleasing the people around them. My parents want this. School wants this. My friends want this. I'll do that. And a lot of women never, according to this one theorist, make it to the third phase, which is the phase where you consider all of those things, where you care about what you want and what your family wants. It's more integrated, right? It doesn't just, it's not just one at the expense of the other. And I think well, that's what we see when Valency first breaks out. She's not she's not really being the person she ultimately wants to be. And it makes sense. It's, I'm not I don't blame her for it. Just yeah. like you said, Joe, it's like she she earned it. Um, but it's not a place she wants to stay forever. And I imagine that future family dinners with Valency and her fam- extended family wouldn't be like that. Right. She's going to grow mm-hmm. her year with Barney, a feeling of safety with him, a, a deeper sense of who she is when she's under not under constraints will give her some ability to both be funny and have boundaries that's what i like to tell myself but um you know not not unkind right not not bitter not yeah um, and there's a moment there are a few moments in the book where you, she looks over her clan and says oh like they're you know there's good in them mm-hmm. there's not all bad um so i think you see that process happening and i think that's also represented in when she asks barney to marry her 
because she says it would have been, you know, she has to wait for his answer because he pauses and she feels like it would have been easier if he just said no. So you get this sense that she's not necessarily like she's going to offer this scary thing up to him, which is letting him know that she loves him without while also knowing he probably doesn't return that. And she's not going to be um, shaken if he says no, but she's also not shaken that he's doing it just to be kind to her. You know, she's got this real sense of self um, as she offers up this hard thing, which I feel like is very mature. Yeah, I think that that um, evolution and maturation that you're identifying is really important because if she had stayed, you know, that rebellious version of her that we first mm-hmm. get where like there is a little bit of a rah, rah, finally moment. But if that's who she became, that would not be satisfying. <laughs> like she would not be likable. And I don't think we'd enjoy reading her adventures. And same with her marriage. Like if the first version of her marriage is not a great marriage, <laughs> you know, it's uh, where, where like they're both willingly uh, you know, with eyes open, but stepping into kind of a half marriage where they're they're going to keep stuff from each other and, yeah. uh, you know, expect that this is going to end within a year. So we don't want to become too invested, uh, you know, and that needs to mature as well. Like if yeah, good she point. had been that person who first lashes out her family or her marriage had been that first version of her marriage, she's kind of just doing it to to to, to move on to, to something different. Um, neither of those would be acceptable i think for the audience like or or pleasant for the yeah audience. that's a good point can i so we say some one thing about nature because that's such a big part of this book what yes, do you make I was of getting Ellen major transcendentalists and and naturalist yeah. vibes for this yeah what do you what do you make of that because this book would have been very satisfying with many fewer paragraphs about the beauty of nature but i actually really enjoy them and i do think john foster is an interesting writer um (laughs) and in fact it has taught me a lot about what i can be thinking about when i'm looking at nature i you know i read this at such a young formative age that now when i go outside and if i have nothing else to think about i have like a template of like a person who's thoughtful would look at the way the this grass looks against the background and think about does this look like a praying mantis? Does this look like a nun? Do I feel like a prayer? Do I feel like an explosion? Like these are sorts of, this is sort of imagery that John Foster makes his living on and Ella Montgomery goes out of her way to include what, like, I feel like it was entirely for Ella Montgomery. Do you get, mm-hmm. I mean, do you feel like it serves a, a function uh, of the, the novel? I mean, it kind of feels like, oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was going to say that maybe she wanted to write a book like John Foster, but she mm-hmm. felt like, she couldn't get away with that, so she <laughs> just stuck John Foster in. Um, I think because it does feel so transcendentalist, that's maybe why I, I thought we were getting the breakaway from civilization and you'll go heal yourself mm-hmm. uh, kind of story, which I think there's a lot of really good stuff in the transcendentalist, but I also think they go too far <laughs> in some of their yes. their ideas. Um, like Thoreau's whole, um, you know, get away like there's value in that. But when he also says like, there's no value in reading a newspaper and knowing about anything that's not directly affecting you. I'm like, mm, are we really being good citizens of the planet at this point right. uh, when, when you're so cut off? Uh, and so it it does feel like that kind of meditative mindfulness uh, side of transcendentalism. And yeah. I, I did enjoy that it, it didn't go for me, like what, is where like it, it goes too far to the edge of like cutting yourself off entirely from others and civilization and a sense of society and and uh you know brotherhood and sisterhood well i think ella montgomery that's what she that's her jam you know her mm-hmm. jam is this conflict of um philosophies so i had a, a friend once talked to me about Anna Montgomery gables and how Anna Montgomery gables is a book about a romantic who lives among pragmatists 
And mm. that tension between that and that's sort of like Valency, not that she's around pragmatist, but she is uh, you know, she's a you know, has this desire for um long longing for things for of like maybe transcendentalism maybe but she lives among like red ferns liniment and posters and i mean with her imagination about the blue castle that feels like gothic romanticism is sure sure yeah so you know better than i but yes and and the husband with the secret room (laughs) like we're 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 drawing on some but ellen montgomery is the creator of that whole world you know Mm -hmm. so she so she gets to decide to i think she i don't think she would want one without the other in reality she loves Mm -hmm. so much the idea of her characters wearing bathing suits and eating apples and putting on skates and eating hot dogs and oh, also it's so dreamy these loving but so that's and that's that maybe that's what i, I came away thinking about this book is that i'd read something that said that she ella montgomery and she got married later in life and um her marriage wasn't necessarily very happy but um i think her I, husband had depression yeah she was devoted and she had kids and they took a vacation to this area of canada and there's some evidence that maybe there was a day when she'd hurt her foot or something and her family was out doing ad- adventures and she was home. She was at their, the place they were staying, sitting on the porch, looking at the beautiful lakes in this part of Ontario, Canada. And she had like a, a daydream about what a perfect life would be. And at the time, her, her best friend or her cousin, a close cousin, was um, a woman who was uh, unmarried and it was in her late 20s. And she Val- and Ellen Montgomery also had a pen pal from Scotland, a man who wrote these long letters to her and that were so funny. Apparently on her honeymoon with her husband, they went to Scotland and she met her pen pal for the first time and his fiance. And she and her pen pal walked along the beach and her husband and the fiance walked behind them. <laughs> uh, <laughs> not great. Um, but that in some ways, like people think that maybe Barney Snaith, John's foster character is is a version of her pen pal and she was marrying him to her best friend, you know, um, in this place that was so beautiful to her that didn't have mosquitoes, which everyone in Ontario knows is preposterous because there's so many mosquitoes. <laughs> um, like, that's really where like, the line has been crossed into fantasy. <laughs> oh, really? There's no mosquitoes there. I mean, okay. The pictures Montgomery. Of, this part of, of, of Ontario are so beautiful, but yeah, there's got to, there's like not enough bugs in this book for sure. <laughs> Uh, so because but, montgomery rolled her ankle a century ago we're sitting here yes. using the internet to record a conversation talking exactly. about this book and, and we're going to release it to, to a podcast daydreams, <laughs> you know and it, it's going to include all the things she loves um good time conversation and uh beautiful beautiful nature yeah and it's interesting that you brought up turning red joe because and the idea of like focusing more on the inner life of women because of course, women are so varied, um, but I felt like I relate so much to Valency, especially before I got married, um, and also to characters in like Jane Austen novels. And sometimes I feel kind of silly for that, you know. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, this, you know, and especially with the, oh man, the picture on the cover of this this copy that I have is so terrible. I just want to cover it. Does it look like a romance novel? Yeah, it looks like a romance novel. It looks like a 1987 romance novel. The guy is wearing a sweater tied around his shoulders and a button-down shirt. He's got blonde hair. Oh, man, it's so so bad. Ridiculous. Like like when they do uh, the the wrong stock photo images on on, on books before. Like, have you seen the uh, Jonathan Swift's A Modest Proposal that has a man kneeling down? Next no, to a woman, a it's like, oh, you, you didn't read, <laughs> you didn't read a modest proposal before you slapped this onto the, <laughs> onto the cover here. But so it just like lends to feeling kind of silly about it. But there's so much richness and tr- truth and things that feel so um, familiar to me. And you know, 
finding a partner and sharing your life is so important that it feels kind of also feels kind of silly just to dismiss that out of hand as of you know a f- feminine experience or as kind of a silly thing to mm-hmm. not look into so yeah, I mean, it's it's not like there's a shortage in pop culture of male fantasies that are absurd being played out and treated as though, like, this is real. <laughs> yeah. this, this is legitimate use of our $100 million budget <laughs> to, to make this right. movie. Right. Uh, you know, a movie about someone wearing a costume and having superpowers. That's normal. We're just going to do one of those a year. And, <laughs> and we I all mean, need I had those dreams, too. As, yeah. <laughs> as a perfectly normal fit power fantasy that everyone on Earth must share. <laughs> Yeah, that's why Sarah mentioned that um, her husband really enjoyed um, the book. And it was both surprising and so awesome because it's a great book, you know. Mm-hmm. So, um, Is there anything that you want to make sure we touch on with the character of Valency or any of the other characters that stood out to you? Yes, I ha- we have to talk about beauty. I know we've been here, but we just got to talk about beauty. The book makes such a big deal about Valance, about physical beauty, feminine physical beauty. Valancey's cousin, Olive, is like so gorgeous. Um, everyone loves her. She's very attractive. And Valancey is not. She never is. She's she's dull. She's got terrible hair. She's really skinny. She's not um, dressed well. She's not dressed well. Terrible fashion. That's forced on her by her family <laughs> that's right um and no resources to address any of those things and it really it really she really mourns it and i don't know if this is a true quote um but i heard it once and it, it just deeply touched me when i was a teenager that apparently eleanor roosevelt said something like considering it all i still would have rather had been pretty i've heard that quote yeah before. so I, and i and i it is just it is just so hard to articulate how deep and profound the desire to be pretty can be, mm-hmm. you know? And, and it is so interesting to see that in her, she did balance. didn't live with social media. She didn't live with supermodels in the way that we think of them, you know? So, but yet there it is on the page from a hundred years ago, someone who feels very approachable like me also sort of, Ah, just anguishing inside and then about not being other people's vision of a physical beauty but then ella montgomery makes her beautiful over time and i have been as a young girl that made me happy but as i got older i'm like that is an interesting choice you know could she have made another choice um would we have been satisfied that as an author Right. Well, I, I think there is, isn't there something near the end about like, she's still not like classically beautiful, like like physically classic. It's more like there's a life to her that. Yes. Although there was that moment with Alan Tierney, the famous painter who only oh, paints right, women. Oh, right. You're right. Yeah. Uh-huh. So it's like, clearly yes. that's, she's definitely beautiful enough in that one light with her hair cut that way. And looking over her shoulder. Yeah. Full of shoulder. flowers. Uh-huh. Yeah. With her tri-cornered yeah. face. Yeah. So there's definitely that. That is straight up like. The male gaze approves. Of, yes, exactly. Uh, of who and, she is and now. Do, and Dr. Redford now then does say something like, I don't think you mind me saying you're not that pretty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's you what know? I was thinking along those lines. So we're, maybe we're getting a little bit of both messages that's happening. True. There was yeah. this moment when I was 16 and I was standing in the hallway at church and this little kid came up to me, this little punky kid, and he said, you're not pretty. Oh. And I said, I know. And he just looked at me <laughs> and walked away. <laughs> And I like went home and cried nobly in my room. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I'm not pretty, I know. 
<laughs> I felt like balancy in that moment in Dr. Redfern. <laughs> Get it? I just want to say, I don't think I have the skill set to navigate the waters we've just entered upon. <laughs> you can handle it, Joe. You can. You will make it through. I mean, I mean just talking about like the uh, the different expectations. Like, I have a 13-year-old daughter, and like if she when she earns her allowance money and I'm like you spend it how she wants she very often wants to go buy makeup and stuff and I like part of me is just like it is so ridiculous that my three sons are never once gonna think I need to go buy makeup <laughs> like, it's like this yeah. is just not something we have ever put upon men that you need to do something to your face before you're presentable to the public and my 13 year old daughter has very much already like and it gives her joy and it's fine I'm not trying to say like she's making the wrong choice to want to engage with that but I do think there's very different standards that are being foisted upon them at very young ages and can uh, I just say something about makeup up that is a little crazy making to me you put makeup most frequently on the parts of your face that produce water <laughs> you know? like like that's where you focus it around your lips and your eyes these are like mucus membrane like, what that's where like, well that's yeah, nice of it I know mean, eyes aren't mucous membranes. I don't actually. I don't know if they are, but you know, the lips like, are definitely not, mucous membranes. It's not. It's not that we just like. It's like oh, they have to do this thing. It's like we have to do this thing in a way that it will definitely not stay and come off over and over again if you live in any way <laughs> or have any emotions. It's ridiculous. And anyway, the expectations are ridiculous. Yeah, but I mean, so this is a, there's a big movement, right? Like among women today to say like well is maybe maybe we just redefine what beauty is and just mm -hmm. recognize that many more women are beautiful or every woman is beautiful the way she is or maybe we just stop caring about beauty as that much like maybe yeah. it's just not that important as a, so I've, a, I've definitely gone through both phases in life where i would compliment all, I, I didn't get married till i was 30 so i was 29 and single i had a 29th birthday that i woke up on single unmarried alone in my bed and so i have that <laughs> the book almost like the book is so uh overwrought about it it's almost like why did she even bother to wake up <laughs> she's 29 <laughs> um and yeah, so I've I've spent time with a lot of single women and have spent many years complimenting them constantly, being like, nobody is telling them how beautiful they are. They are so beautiful. I'm just going to say it as often as I think it. Mm -hmm. And then I got to a point where I was like, I am tired of talking about how we look. I'm just tired of it. You know, like, can we all just talk about something else other than, hi, it's so good to see you again. You're so cute. You look so great. You're so – like, who – do we have to care? Can we just stop caring for a little while? So people can still care. I get it. But I'm in a phase right now. I've, oh, I've, my pendulum has swung the other way. I guess mm -hmm. I'm in defiance, maybe. <laughs> I'm just never going to mention it to you. I'm never going to tell you how I think about how, what I think about how you look. And it's Ooh, I'm excited for your uh, differentiated, your uh, next phase. You're yeah. going to get a lot more compliments during that phase, Rachel. Nice. But not well, you already complimented me a lot. compliments. It's going to be yeah, nuanced. Nuanced. threading the needle. <laughs> Integrated. <laughs> What is a nuanced compliment? Your face has the. <laughs> your face is like a prayer. I your face is like a tomato. The you look like like, your best like self substantive today. compliments I could give at church that were like, "Oh, you look like you're fasting today." <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow! Your 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 hands are just so holy in that position. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> what? <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't know how to pull us back. <laughs> We're exactly where we need to be, Joe. We're exactly. Right. Maybe, yeah, maybe there's nowhere, no, no back to go to. There's no back to go to. We're in the heart of women, or yeah. me, at least. <laughs> and Rachel, I guess. <laughs> We're really dissecting you, Sarah. Um, but no, yes, that's the point, right? Like, it's important to 
to visit those places. And I was always surprised that Ellen Montgomery got me there when she lived so long before I did, you know? Um, I felt like I had a teammate in this battle of thinking through people's expectations and desires and at such a young age. And I, I, and I saw that in Valency, even though we're quite different. Wouldn't you say people would not describe me very much like Valency, Rachel? No, I would not say they would say, yeah, no. You I guess that's my answer. <laughs> I, mean, I, I certainly, didn't, I mean, this is our only conversation we've ever had. You don't strike me as a withered husk of a woman sitting in a corner <laughs> being cowed by everyone around her. <laughs> Thank you. I will take that. <laughs> and that yet, was a nuanced compliment. That was a nuanced compliment. <laughs> that struck me as a withered Oscar. <laughs> Joe, you should put that in your repertoire. It's going to get you far. Yeah. Oh, um, as as he doesn't start in a very strong place in, the, in, the, in this novel. Um, but that's that's the amazing thing about about um, anyway. And I'm just going to get ridiculously broad. That's the amazing thing about books. <laughs> is that you know the balance and i are so different and yet i really felt like um she was able to help me explore something that was meaningful to me that no one else was talking about um and there she was there we you know i got to watch her grow up um rachel was it you who put a few of these quotes down here near the bottom of the doc? yeah i just wanted to read a couple of these about valency um and one in particular, maybe just the last one, it says, when death comes, I shall have lived Valency. I shall have had my hour. Why, why was that the quote that you, one, one of the quotes that you pulled here? Um, I think, oh man, I mean, it's such a big one. I guess I haven't really honed into why it struck me. Um, it's one I remember know, listening to the book and, you know, it was yeah. my first time through, but I, I do remember that line. Yeah. I think um, partly it's my desire to like really live a full life and make sure that I'm doing things with a purpose um, instead of just letting the days kind of go along, being an agent um, in my own life. And when, when she's talking about this, um, I think she's, uh, this is soon after um, she's, decided she's in love with Barney. And so it's, she's talking about her love for him. She'll, you know, that has given her life purpose. I think it's partly it's that, um, sometimes I forget that that's what's important in life is other people. I'm like, <laughs> just stop interrupting the thing I'm trying to do. Okay. <laughs> like leave me alone so I can watch my TV shows. Um, and then, but I feel like life is really, more about other people and being part of community i mean so, just even that yeah. phrase uh at the end where it says like i shall have had my hour um it makes me think that the the way her life is described and um how she's unwilling to like stand up to anyone or assert her own desires or will on any situation <laughs> pretty much it is always yeah. uh, someone else who is defining what's happening like she really doesn't feel like she's had an hour. I know it's being used uh, metaphorically here as well, you know, you know, as, as a period of time, but it almost feels like she probably hasn't had an hour where she was oh, yeah. her best self and, and living, um, you know, the way that she wanted to until she kind of decides I'm, you know, beca because of this uh, missent letter, um, she's going to go live. 
end. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think as you said, she even means specifically her hour because as she has that terrible night where she's looking back over her life, she's like, I haven't even had an hour of happiness. Mm-hmm. You're like, maybe that's true, but maybe not. Are you forgetting <laughs> some? I hope you're forgetting I, something. I hope there's <laughs> been some positive interactions with this family. I will. Uh, I, I mean, I think it's, um, oh, what was it? The, uh, what were the two dichotomies that you you said earlier, Sarah? Compliance like the, and defiance. Yeah, like she's being super defiant <laughs> at that moment. Yeah, yeah. And, and she's even like looking back at her past with that defiance of like, wait a second. Yeah, and we sort of see that when she talks to Sissy and Sissy's so happy that she comes because you would have think that you would, I would have thought that Sissy would have no feelings about her because mm-hmm. she was so, you know, a tired husk of a girl. Um, but Sissy remembers her as being different than everyone and in a kind way. And um, – wanting to be friends with her and so even though valency had a rueful lonely school experience there was at least one other person there wanting to be her friend so it makes you wonder like what was she missing you know yeah and i I, we do get a little more nuance in how she describes her family at the end right like some of that maturation has allowed her to see not just the you know the defiant view of who these people were and what you know they they did to her which wasn't just everything that was done to her but it probably wasn't quite as extremely solely negative as she remembered it in in some of her worst moments and she probably could have done something about it earlier you know i mean her mom was unlikely to kick her out you know yeah pretty explicitly her mom will let her uh come (laughs) home no matter what choices she makes no matter how much she she disagrees with them yeah she just didn't want to disappoint she didn't want the conflict she didn't want the disappointment and it's very i mean this is Something I'll be reading in a book called How Women Rise, which is um, sort of just like a business-minded book for women to learn how to grow in uh, leadership skills. One thing it points out so clearly is that a lot of women struggle with feeling like good women don't disappoint people, that that is the definition of being a good woman. You don't disappoint anyone. And so we make a lot of choices based on just a desire not to disappoint. But what's the cost? I mean, Valency... Did dis- her mother was always disappointed in her, even though she did everything she said, and Valency hated her life. Um, so that that isn't by itself um, a little bit of a lose lose. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it, she was buying into that. She was complicit for sure. Mm-hmm. You know, in that. All right. Well, uh, Sarah, you are a first time guest, and when we have first time guests, we like to ask the dinner guest question because we celebrate great characters and great stories. If you could hang out for a dinner party with uh, you know a handful of fictional characters, who would you want to spend an evening with? Okay, this question has really bedeviled me um, because I am shockingly short-sighted or short-memoried or something (laughs) because a full half of my guests would be the three best friends in the currently on Netflix, just barely finished Korean drama, 39. (laughs) So not classic characters, but this 39 Korean um, show, it's it's called 39. It's a Korean drama about three best friends whose names I certainly will mispronounce. Um, if I had to choose one of them, I'd choose Chan Young, who is this wonderful, just very rich character who's an actress who finds out she's going to die of cancer early on. And then her two best friends, um, Chami Jo and Chung Joo-hee. So they are just a, like a wonderful trio of love and um, teasing. And they have been best friends for th- 20 years. So I would love to hang out with them. You and said it's called I, 39? It's called 39. Okay. Mm-hmm. So my wife and I, and I have been watching the K-drama uh, Business Proposal, which the last episode released today on Netflix. So <gasps> after we record this, I'm probably going to oh. go, go watch that one. Yeah, yeah, Business <laughs> Proposal. I think it's 14, okay. 12 episodes. 12 episodes. I'm going to watch today. it. Yeah. I'm also watching a Love and Forecasting, Forecasting, Love and Weather, something like that. Um, 
it's good, but I think 39 is, 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 is better than that one. So I would recommend 39. Um, I'll check out business proposal. Okay. So then I would also, I think I would invite Valency. I think I would invite Valency because, um, she's such an, uh, an interesting person. I just love to, would love to meet her in person and ask her more questions about her experience. And then I think I would bring uh, Flora Post from Cold Comfort Farm. Um, I love Cold Comfort Farm. It's been far too long since I watched that. Oh my gosh. I mean, and have you read the it's book? It's probably too? been over just... a decade. Oh my goodness. I need to watch that again. The movie is so, so, so good. And yeah. the book is also so good. See, yeah, I know, I, I've not read the book. I've only seen the movie. It's very short. So it's not, it's not, it, well, I mean, it says it's 307 pages. It felt short to me. <laughs> um, but it does, the, you know how the movie is so, so good at tone, it, like flipping mm-hmm. back and forth between um, different tones. The book does that too, which is just oh. amazing to see in print. Okay. Um, and yeah, doesn't the author like asterisk the paragraphs she likes the most? Maybe. <laughs> I think she does that. So you get a lot of of like humanity from the just the, clearly it's clear that it wasn't just the director. The author um, herself was a, a real character. And Flora Post um, is like many of the Elle Montgomery characters, uh, a kind of a, a contrast in time. Right? She's a modern woman, and she moves to this um, Victorian era. Is that right? Farm? Edwardian? I don't know anything about British time. Um, a sort of gothic farmhouse. And she 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 says she's like Jane Austen, that not, that she can't endure a mess. Um, so I just, I think talking with her at dinner would be really fun too. With these best friends. I wasn't able to come up with any men. This would be just a bunch of, uh, like a ladies dinner. That's fun. right. Can we girls and night out? Yeah. Uh, when you watch K-dramas, do you find yourself wanting to go find a Korean restaurant that serves food exactly like what they show in those? Joe, I have eaten Korean food every day for like a month because of this. <laughs> I'm okay. not kidding. After we finish recording, we're going to talk about where you get your Korean food because okay. it looks so good on K It is so good. It is so good. Yes. All right. Well, that's going to wrap up this episode. Thank okay. you for joining us. Uh, for show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, listeners, you can go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice and please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We'd like to thank Scott Talk to you who composed our theme music. Thank you again for listening. We'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. Bye. After I say Rachel, we'll have her say hi just so the audience hears her voice. And then I'll say you as the first time guest, Sarah. And you can say hi so they hear your voice and start to be able to cue those in. It took us a while when we had multiple guests to figure out the right way mm-hmm. <laughs> to, to let our audience know who was whom. All right. <clears throat> a brand new band. <laughs> <going smart>. <laughs> no, I'm good. This was very satisfying. Uh, your voices are so similar. I'm not sure who said that. <laughs> I did wonder about that. Um, I, Rachel, am also good. (laughs) I was about to say, I thought it was, I thought it was Sarah that had just said that. And I was about to say, Rachel, what about you? And then I had a moment of panic. I'm like, what if it's just Rachel who spoke? (laughs) Were you listening? Yeah. (laughs) Oh, I should have gone with my instinct and not revealed (laughs) that. No, our children sometimes get us confused. So, yeah. When they're in our presences. Like, (laughs)